All right, so we're continuing in our series, uh, Jesus, the Resurrection and the Life. And two weeks ago, we looked at the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus was dead for four days in the tomb, and yet Jesus simply spoke the word, and Lazarus came out of the tomb, walks out of the grave. It was an, it's an incredible account of Jesus' power to raise the dead, but we saw also it's an incredible panorama of God's gracious loving kindness to all of us, in that Jesus understands us in our weakness and because he was made like us, and he was tempted like us, and he endured suffering like us. He, in every way, he's like us, except without sin, right? And then after enduring all of that, he gave his life for us. He experienced death for us. That's hard to comprehend. And we learn that through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has given us access to the glorious throne of grace, and that's an awesome place that we get to go with confidence. Well, last week we looked at the account of Mary who anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the short episode in John's Gospel contrasts uh, Mary and Judas, and Judas loved money, and Mary loved Jesus. Remember? And the short episode in John's Gospel um, it, it reminds us that both are remembered in, in that passage of God's, in God's Word uh, for the nature of their relationship with Jesus. Mary believed and she loved, and Judas believed, disbelieved and he rejected. And Mary's life was characterized by love and peace as she contentedly worshipped Jesus, and Judas' life was characterized by grief and, and, and greed and as he discontentedly stole from Jesus. And we saw kind of how their two lives played out. And in that passage, we also learned, though, sitting at the table in the town of Bethany, uh, five days or six days before Passover, there was Lazarus. And he was freshly alive from the dead, rejoicing in the life that Jesus had given to him. And Lazarus was living and breathing and speaking and walking and working. And all this was a testimony of the power of Jesus to raise the dead. And Lazarus was impossible to ignore. He didn't really even have to say anything, right? His presence was enough to evoke a lot of responses and to all kinds of feelings as they watched this guy who had been dead, right? And either a response of belief in Jesus or a response of rejection of Jesus. There was no middle ground. It was either belief or rejection, right? And between these two accounts of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and, sit, and, and then Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus pouring out uh, this oil on Jesus, we find this passage for today. This is a part of John's gospel. It reads sort of like a, no a novel. It switches back and forth between those who believe and those who didn't believe. And the believers were engaged in festive parties, celebration, joy because of who Jesus is and what he had done. And then there's the unbelievers, and they're full of fear and hate for Jesus, and they're engaged in conspiracies and plots and threats against Jesus because they rejected who he was. We come to find out through reading John's gospel that Jesus draws a line in the sand. And everyone must either cross it or not cross it, right? They're on one side of the line or the other. So one side of the line, there's life, and the other side is death. One side is love, the other side is hate. One side, there's Jesus, and the other side, there's self. And the contrast in the passage is stark. There's light and darkness. There's belief and unbelief. There's fear or peace. There's love or hate. There's life or death. And these few paragraphs that we're going to look at today, they highlight the contrast and give background information for what transpires all through what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks, which is Jesus' Passion Week, right up to the death, burial, and resurrection, right? And this, this passage sets the context for that second half of the Gospel of John. And 
There's also a hidden gem uh, of great worth found in this passage today. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search for fine pearls, who, finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's quite a thought. A more modern Jason Knapp version might sound like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a stock trader in search of a fine company who, on finding one company of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Think about that. Jesus saying that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, faith in him, trust that he is the ruler of the world, resting in his salvation and provision and receiving all the grace that he gives us is worth selling all that we have and giving all that we are for it, for him. The kingdom of God offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ is of great value, enormous value. I'm not sure that we Christians in the West truly understand this, that the kingdom of God is more valuable than any of the kingdoms of this world. I want you to chew on that for a bit as we delve into this passage. So turn with me back to John 11. We're going to begin with John 11, verse 43, just to get a little bit of context, then we're going to read down uh, to verse 48. So John 11, verse 43 When he, Jesus, had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, so we're at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we, do, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So Je- Jesus simply says a few words, right? And Lazarus rises from the dead. And he walks out of the tomb. His face is still wrapped in linen strips of cloth. And the Jews that had come... Uh, with Mary to the tomb, they're standing around and, they're, and they see Jesus perform this incredible miracle and they saw what happened with their very eyes. And John says that those Jews who were there at the tomb saw what Jesus did and there were two responses. Right? Some of them believed in him, which is the only reasonable response. Is, um, <laughs> right? it, it's correct and appropriate response to such an incredible miracle. He just raised the dead, right? But some of them went right to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, John doesn't really tell us the motive for them doing this, but the assumption is that they went to the authorities because they did not believe. It seems that they went to the religious authorities and they tattled on Jesus. Like, hey, Pharisees, this guy Jesus is out of control. He's just gone to a whole other level. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, we saw it with our own eyes. We, we, We beheld the glory of God and We saw this, but we're not sure how he did that. This is very concerning because he's gaining a following. Many people are believing him and they're following him and they think he's the Messiah. You should be aware and we're wondering if we should follow him or not. The eternal optimist in me says that I could imagine them going to the Pharisees, right, and being with excitement and saying, hey, this man, Jesus is incredible. He's all that he says he is. He's truly remarkable. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He raised Lazarus from the dead. We saw it with our eyes, and we're giving glory to God, and we are wholeheartedly going to follow Jesus, and you should come and join us. But that's not what happened. Not at all. After hearing the report, the religious and political leaders of the day were not having it. 
Right? Instead of belief in Jesus, they reject who He is. Instead of concerning themselves with the kingdom of God, they're only concerned with the kingdom of this world. Their hearts were hard. You see, John is revealing a great conflict that's going on all around us, a conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus talks about this all through, his, all through the Gospels. And John also reveals the heart of these two kingdoms and then the responses uh, and the two responses to Jesus. There's, there's belief or unbelief. There's, everyone is part of one kingdom or another. There's no middle ground when it comes to King Jesus. There's a line in the sand. There's the kingdom of man. We're going to look at that first. And this is characterized by fear, hate, and self-preservation. In verse 46 to 48, we see fear. They're like, what are we to do? Right? This is not a question stemming from a desire to join Jesus. Like, how do we get involved here? It's a question of desperation. Like, what can we do to stop this guy? I'm afraid that, they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. So fear led to exaggeration. Everyone's going to believe in him. I don't think so. These guys didn't believe in him, right? And, and neither were the Pharisees and all those who were there. And it's an exaggeration that they're doing. And, and so Jesus was performing signs, they said. But instead of believing in Jesus because of those signs, the signs were all the more reason for them not to believe and instead to stop him. Right? They, didn't, they didn't want anyone believing in Jesus, and certainly not everyone. Ironically, they knew that the key to all this was belief. Right? But they themselves refused to place their faith in Jesus, and they wanted to stop everyone else from doing the same thing, and so they had to stop him. And they said, the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. If everyone goes after him, the Romans are going to take away our place and our nation. So fear led to fatalism. Right? Rome will come, destroy our place. And what they're talking about is um, most likely referring to the temple, their holy place of worship, Jerusalem, all that. They're going to take that away, the central hub of all of Jewish life, and they're going to destroy our nation. They feared the extermination by the Romans if they heard of an uprising you know, from people following Jesus. So the fear that was driving them was that wholesale belief in Jesus would lead to a loss of freedom to worship and to live peaceably and the loss of their national identity. Belief in Jesus is going to ruin everything. Ironic how the mantra really hasn't changed even today. Just think that Jesus, the one who brings back to life those who are dead, forgives sins, heals the wounded, binds up the brokenhearted, the compassionate God who leads us to the Father's throne of grace, belief in Him is going to ruin everything. Like, really? It's so sad that God's own creation hates him so much. But lest we become arrogant and think we're so great, what is even sadder yet is that except for the grace of God, that's where we'd all be. The kingdom of darkness is motivated by hate and fear. Hate in verse 53, look at what happens. So from that day on, they, planned, uh, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he should be, that they should let them know so that they might arrest him. And then chapter 12, verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Now remember, the folks John is referring to are Pharisees and chief priests. They're religious and political leaders of the day. The chief priests made plans to put him to death. 
and Caiaphas is part of this plot. Can you imagine the high priest conspiring to put someone to death? Can you imagine a council of pastors or religious leaders conspiring to murder someone? It's ludicrous. These evil religious political leaders put Jesus on the most wanted list. The council made orders known to everyone, posted the wanted signs around town, and then you know, sent word via social media, whatever that looked like back then. And, and if anyone knew of his whereabouts, they were to alert the authorities and turn Jesus in. It took on a whole nother level for everybody. Jesus had to go into hiding because he was putting others in danger now, his very existence. If someone knew his whereabouts and didn't disclose it to the authorities, they'd be an accessory to a crime. The corrupt leaders were working the crowd, leveraging the legal system against Jesus. It's pure evil. It's outright hate fueled by fear. Another thing that kingdom of darkness is characterized by is self-preservation. Look at verse 49 to 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, Caiaphas was not really a good man, as we see in this passage. He, he was kind of curt, dismissive, condescending, rude, and conspiring to murder Jesus and Lazarus, right? He's like, you know nothing at all. Kind of arrogant. Neither do you understand what I understand, right? Here, let me enlighten you with my genius. Nice high priest. Ours is much better. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, and he listens to our prayers. And he understands. That's what I love about Jesus, right? He's better in every way. Caiaphas continues, It's better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should die. Wise political reasoning. Caiaphas was savvy. Sacrifice for the, the one for the sake of the many. <clears throat> Self-preservation at any cost, right? I can hear the logic. We need to do this, right? Or innocent people are going to die. Our freedoms will be taken away. Rome's going to come in. Our cultural heritage is going to be destroyed. It's our duty. In fact, it's, our, uh, it's what our religion teaches us, right? We bring sacrifices to the temple, offering an animal in our place, a life for a life. So Caiaphas, in his rude, cynical, condescending way, gave savvy political religious advice, right? He'd already made up his mind as to what should happen. It was a calculated decision. After which, it, after he shared it with others, that was embraced by the rest of the council. Verse 53, it says they made plans to put Jesus to death. Verse 56, they gave orders to the people to turn Jesus in. And Jesus would be the scapegoat, so to speak, to save the nation. His ideology, his teaching, his miracles, they had to be stopped. And the only way to stop it was to kill him. No other option in their minds. In the minds of the council, either Jesus died or the nation died. His life or theirs. They kill one or the Romans kill all. Very black and white. Caiaphas was suggesting a substitution, like the sacrificial system that he knew so well, slaughtering the innocent for the sake of the guilty. He was, to, he was used to having blood on his hands, though. He'd been sacrificing animals all his life. And this is the mindset of the kingdom of man. Right? The kingdom of darkness is fueled by fear, motivated by hate, saturated in self-preservation. Sadly, the chief priests, religious leaders of the day, they conspired to murder Jesus. And now let's contrast that, the kingdom of man, with the kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of God is characterized by faith, 
hope and love. Verse 45, we see that the Jews that had come with Mary had seen what Jesus did and they believed in Him. And then chapter 12, verse 9, says, When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only in account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He'd raised from the dead. Verse 11, Because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the people saw what Jesus did and they believed. Like, <laughs> I hope we would all believe in a person like that. If, if I saw someone raise someone out of the grave, I, I think I would think twice about who they were and their power, right? You'd think you'd believe in that individual, right? That's quite, quite a thing to do. I've never seen any of you raise anyone from the dead. But faith in his appropriate response to a miracle of this caliber, right? So the people also, they saw Lazarus and they believed in Jesus. Right? Chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. So this was presumably a few days later after he was risen from the dead. So Lazarus was still up and he's around. He's talking, eating, walking. He's living. Right? He hadn't just recovered and then fallen back over. No one had to put his body back in the grave. He wasn't sick and in bed struggling to you know, get up and stay alive. He was living abundantly. He was flourishing with the life that God had given him, Jesus had given him. And so the people came to see Lazarus, make sure he was alive, see what was going on. And when they saw him, they heard his testimony. Hey, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And they went away believing in Jesus. Again, the only reasonable response to this incredible event would be faith. And like, I see, and now I believe. There's also love. The kingdom of God is also characterized by love. Chapter 12, 1 through 7, I'm not going to read it now, but we read it last week and those who believed in Jesus, they entered the kingdom of God. Their faith causes their responses to circumstances in life to be different than those in the kingdom of darkness. Whereas the religious leaders were filled with hate and wanting to kill Jesus and wipe out any memory of him, there was a woman in Bethany who was filled with love for Jesus and wanted to honor him so that his memory would remain forever. She had the same pieces of information. She saw the same miracles. She was part of the same nation, <clears throat> cared just as much for their sacred place of worship and for their national identity and all of that. But her faith caused her to view everything differently, from a different angle. Instead of conspiring to kill Jesus or to run for the authorities and tell them where he was because she was worried about the Romans coming and taking away everything that she had, no, she poured ointment on his feet, a full year's salary at his feet. She knew that he was going to die, and, so, and she also knew why. And from faith and in love, she did what she could to honor his death and to demonstrate to everyone how the aroma of his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins was going to fill the whole world. Those who place their faith in Jesus, they enter the kingdom of God, and their faith in Jesus, as Jesus said, makes them whole. Whereas the religious leaders fueled by hate and couldn't stand the thought of anyone knowing who Jesus was and following him and believing in him and what he'd done, they're, on the other hand, there's dead men who are alive walking around and lepers who were cleansed and throwing parties in their houses, right? All of them love Jesus and were giving loving testimony of who he was and the power to bring back from the dead that he had and, and light into every life, and they celebrated that. This was posing a problem then for the chief priests, and this is why they conspired to put Lazarus to death as well. Can you imagine that? 
the only person in the whole world at that time who had been dead and now was alive, able to speak about his experience, give unique honor and glory to God, you think the religious leaders would want to learn all they could from him, right? And use him for whatever, to promote what God had done. But no, instead they want to kill him and silence him. They hated Jesus that much. And now Lazarus was the object of hate as well. The hate is in such contrast to how much love those believers had, not only in Jesus, but in each other, with each other. They loved each other. And the third thing about um, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is hope. Look at verse 51. So Caiaphas had said this about one man should uh, die for the sake of the whole nation, right? He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John the author brings incredible insight to this scene, this horrible scene of hate-filled plotting to kill Jesus, killing the innocent to save the guilty, and he, he twists it with a different viewpoint. John reveals to us just how prophetic and correct Caiaphas was in his statement that he concluded that the only way to preserve their lives was to sacrifice the life of someone else. Did Caiaphas know what he was saying? According to John, in one sense, yes, but no, right? From a nationalistic political sense, yes, he knew what he was saying. But in another sense, he had no theological understanding of what was going to happen and what, what kind of a prophecy he was giving. Caiaphas was making a political move. Jesus was making a spiritual move. And John reveals to us a theological truth, a long-standing biblical truth. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? God is sovereign. There ain't no denying it. Which is an incredible truth to see from this short passage. That God is sovereign. He's working behind the scenes in all things to, to bring about his perfect plan to save the world. And that would be enough to learn from this passage because that alone is encouraging and enough to, for us to even go from here. It's a meal we could take with us right here. But like a deep mind full of jewels and gems, there's more to God's Word. The deeper you delve into it, the more that you find. And there's a pearl of great price right here that's super exciting. Because look at what John says next. John repeated the all-important part of what Caiaphas said. Jesus would die for the nation. Jesus would die for others, not for himself. And Jesus' death would be a substitutionary death. If Jesus lived, the nation would die. But if Jesus died, the nation would live. But John doesn't stop there. Jesus' death was not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, for the whole world. Jesus would die for the nations, not just for one. Jesus' death would be the substitute for every person who ever lived. If Jesus lived, then the world would perish. But if Jesus died, then the world would have the opportunity to live and be gathered together into one entity, that entity being the kingdom of God. And this concept, this truth, is called substitutionary atonement. Big words, substitutionary atonement. Basically, it's an offering, a perfect sacrifice for the life of another. The blood of the perfect sacrifice being offered in place of the blood of the sinner. Listen to what Paul said. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 18. <clears throat> you can turn there or you can listen 
along as I read. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass or one sin, one, one, one evil act, right? As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and he's talking about Adam back in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Here he's talking about Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous, that's Jesus. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One sin committed by Adam led to condemnation and sin and death to all men. One act of substitution by Jesus led to justification and righteousness and life to all who believe. Again, there are two kingdoms and only two. You are either in the kingdom of darkness and death or you are in the kingdom of light and life. And there is a line in the sand and we all have the opportunity and responsibility to cross that line. But this isn't just a New Testament truth. Substitutionary atonement has been God's plan from the beginning. All the Old Testament sacrifices, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see this and you might wonder what it's about. All of those pointed forward to what Jesus would do for all people on the cross. The Israelites participated yearly in what they called the Day of Atonement. It was a day when the high priest would sacrifice one animal, shedding his blood and offering it up to God as a substitution for everyone else in the nation. Right? The one sacrifice made for the sins of many. One death substituting for the death of all. And during the rest of the year, the priests would be in the temple daily offering sacrifices for the people to atone for their sin. The animal took the place of the one who brought it. It was a, it was a substitute for the sinner. The animal took the punishment for the sin and it died in the place of the sinner. But animal, animal blood never cut it. Animal blood covered their sin, but it never washed it away. And Jesus, the animal sacrifice, was a picture of what only Jesus could do. Only the sinless, perfect blood of the Creator God come in mortal flesh could atone for the sins of the whole world. And that's the reason for our hope. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes that Jesus offered himself once as a sacrifice for sins. Right? Forgiveness and perfection are available to all those who place their trust in Jesus. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then right now, you are forgiven. Your sins are not just covered. They are removed. You are perfected. You are made righteous before God because the righteousness of Jesus has been given to you. You are also made alive. Colossians chapter 2 says, You who were dead in your trespasses, think of Lazarus, are made alive together with him, right? having forgiven all of your sins. You're made alive. You're also, you're gathered into one. As John says, we're united into one body, the body of Christ. This is, again, an Old Testament concept. This isn't the New Testament thing. Old Testament, Psalm 107, 1-3 says, Oh, go thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so that he has redeemed from trouble and gathered, listen, from in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. That's all peoples. Isaiah talks of this too in chapter 43, verse 5. He says, Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bring you your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you, and all the nations will be gathered together, and all the peoples will assemble. If you have believed in Jesus, then you have been forgiven and perfected and given life, and you've been joined into the kingdom family of God. It's wonderful. 
And this is what John is talking about here. His desire for everyone who reads this is that they would believe and that they would understand that Jesus is their substitute. Have you believed in the good news? That Jesus is your substitute? If not, now is the time. Please see me afterwards. What a glorious hope we have in Jesus. Instead of living in a kingdom marked by fear and hate and self-preservation, we are joined together into a kingdom of faith, hope, and love. And this whole situation that we've been reading about here in John 11 and 12 reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. Now, mind you, Jesus told this parable long before he raised Lazarus from the dead. So considering John 11 and 12, and this, this thing that happened with Lazarus, this parable of Jesus now is dripping with irony. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to read a parable of Jesus. Many of you are familiar with it, but I want you to read it with different eyes. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in his manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides, all this betwixt, or between us, uh, you, there's a great chasm has been fixed, and in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they may, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Not coincidence that Jesus named that man Lazarus in that parable. It's also not coincidence that Jesus ends the parable with, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Even though Lazarus rose from the dead giving testimony to the truth of who Jesus was, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. The Old Testament talked all about him. Or that his kingdom had come. Or that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Or that he came to as a substitution, right? His blood for theirs. Or that Jesus would save them from eternal punishment. They were not convinced at all. In fact, they were so unconvinced that they didn't even want to listen to Lazarus. Remember, he had risen from the dead and he was talking and they didn't want to listen to him. Right? Instead, they wanted to put Lazarus back in the grave. They were more concerned with their earthly kingdom than with the heavenly one. They could not handle the truth of who Jesus was. Instead, they wanted to kill them both. Their earthly perspective caused them to fear and to hate and to seek to preserve themselves. The chief priests were the religious leaders of the day. They were supposed to be concerned with the things of God, but ironically, they were not. They were only concerned with the temporal. 
Their attention was fixed upon the flimsy, weak, tottering, corrupt, pathetic, worldly, evil, greedy kingdom of this world. But their attention should have been on the kingdom that was being offered to them, the only kingdom that is sturdy and powerful and stable and eternal and righteous and just and heavenly and beautiful and gracious, the kingdom of God. The religious leaders were so preoccupied with the temporal that they missed the eternal. The folks who believed, they were starting to get it because the next episode that we're going to get to next week is about them welcoming Jesus into the, into the city of Jerusalem, right? As their king of this kingdom that he was offering. All this talk of kings and kingdoms lends itself to a gentle exhortation. Not sure if you've heard or not, but this is an election year. <laughs> Some of you have, I hear that. Okay, good. Elections tend to dominate our attention all year long. Our nation, many Christians, we're going to talk and debate and read and watch and listen and forward all kinds of information about candidates and political climates and conspiracies and what have you. We'll spend countless hours doing research and we'll spend billions of dollars on campaigns all for the sake of electing just one right person. Here's a gentle question for you. What would happen if we spent even a fraction of the time, energy, money, and attention that we would spend on the earthly kingdom and we focused it on the kingdom of God? What would happen if Christians spoke more about Jesus and his name came out of our mouths more often than our favorite political candidate? Shouldn't Jesus' name be spoken of from our lips more than anyone else? Because he is the one who substituted his blood for ours giving us forgiveness, righteousness, life, citizenship in heaven. If this is true, which it is, Jesus is not just the Savior of one nation. He's the Savior of the world, right? He is the King of kings, and his kingdom is the world's superpower. And his kingdom sets the economic standard. And, his king, and the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that is unshakable. We hear a lot of talk these days about the fear of losing our place and our nation. I wonder how many folks are missing the point of who Jesus is because their hope is misplaced. There's already someone who is our king and he has already promised that he is preparing a place for us and it's going to be way better than anything this fallen offer, world can offer. And he's already united us into an eternal and everlasting nation under his banner of faith, hope, and love. You know what happened about 40 years after Jesus' death? These guys were afraid of something happened that happened. Roman, Rome came in, destroyed their place, and took away their nation. They've been in Jesus. And in them for thousands of years, nation after nation has tried to eradicate the kingdom of God, but none has been successful. It just keeps on growing. 2,000 years later, the church continues to spread, and it is the superpower because Jesus is king. The kingdom of God, like a pearl of great price, really is worth giving up everything we have for it. Jesus said that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. So why in the world would we seek first any other kingdom? Ruled by some sinful, self-absorbed, sickness-prone, forgetful, untrustworthy human who can easily be defeated and who will eventually die when we have we would rather seek first the kingdom ruled by a selfless, all-knowing, all-powerful, uncompromisingly faithful king who shed his blood as our substitute for ours and then rose from the dead never to die again, the one and only king who can never be defeated. To me, it's a no-brainer. 
There's only one man in the history of the human race who I'm going to believe in and who I'm going to cheer for, and that is Jesus Christ. Truth is, Jesus is the only world leader who has ever risen from the dead. And he is the only king who follows through on his promises. And he's the only one who can pardon and forgive. He is the only one who can truly give me life, who provides for my and your every need, who heals all of our diseases, who comforts the brokenhearted, who gives us shelter. He is the only one who gives us access to the throne of grace. There's only one king who died for the nations. He did this out of selfless and lavish love, and then he's the only king who rose from the dead so that he alone could graciously gather and unite people from all over the planet into one familial kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of faith, hope, and love in which he rules with kindness and compassion and grace. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Those of us who have believed have received the kingdom. We have it, and it's out of this world. So will we live in fear, or will we live by faith? Will we hate our enemies, or will we love as we have been loved? Will we seek to preserve our lives, or will we con be content to lose our lives for Jesus, resting in our eternal hope? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. The reminder from your scripture that Jesus did die for the nation, not just for one, though, for all nations, so that we could be united into your family, your kingdom, and receive all the benefits of being yours. Thank you for forgiving our sins for giving us life, for perfecting us, for purifying us, for giving us your Holy Spirit that unites us in one, not just in this room, but with all those who place faith in Jesus all around the world. Your kingdom is unshakable, continues to grow. That is so encouraging. Thank you that we have this hope, that Jesus is our King. Nothing will defeat him, and we will forever be with him in glory. Help us to live in light of that hope, Help us not to forget the cost, that it, what it cost Jesus to give us this. It cost him his life. He substituted his blood so that we could have life in you. May we walk in reverence and awe of that, and may we worship you as we go into this week. And as we head towards Resurrection Sunday, when we will celebrate him rising from the tomb, we are grateful, so grateful for what you've done. Be with us as we go from here, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.